why didn't the Nazis make an exception for bisexuals? I mean, the Nazi policy on sex was babies, babies, babies to fight the next war and breed the next generation of Aryans. So I guess it makes a twisted sort of logic to persecute non-breeding orientations like homosexuals, but bisexuals are no such thing. They're just as willing and able as anyone else to help raise the birth rate, which was their goal. And yet, they were convicted in courts and persecuted along with homosexuals almost as if their difference was invisible. The Nazis breathed hardly a word about bisexuality and made no special exceptions for it. Could this have been an early form of bisexual erasure? And what is bisexual erasure anyway, and how did it develop across history? That's what we're talking about on today's Short Shorts episode. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex. History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. I'd like to thank our new Patreon patron, Andy Olson, for making this episode possible. Hey folks, this episode of the History of Sex is sponsored by Let's Get Checked. Did you know that across the globe, men's healthy sperm counts have dropped by 50% in the last 40 years? When I heard this, I immediately Googled it and found out, yeah, it's true. Believe it or not, one in four men over 30 are low in testosterone and have a hormonal imbalance. And symptoms may include low energy or fatigue, erectile dysfunction, low sex drive, anxiety, brain fog, or even just having a hard time making decisions. And that is why I would like to make you aware of our sponsor, Let's Get Checked. Their fast, affordable, and always confidential at-home test kits help our listeners take a measured approach to their health from the comfort of their own home. And it's not just male hormone testing either. Let's Get Checked offers a whole suite of tests for men, women, and everyone in between, and they are even developing a test for COVID-19. That's right, in the near future, you will be able to get tested from the privacy of your home. They're CLIA-approved, the highest-ranking level of accreditation. All data is completely anonymized to ensure your privacy, and new customers even get 20% off by using our URL and code. Just go to trylgc.com slash btnewberg and enter the code HISTORY for 20% off of your purchase. I tried it myself, and it was actually pretty easy. My kit came in the mail. I took a sample in the morning, mailed it out the same day, and in less than two weeks, I could see my test results online. And then a nurse even called me for a personal consultation, and I never even had to leave my home. So get yourself checked for hormone levels or whatever is on your priority list. Just go to trylgc.com slash btnewberg and use our code HISTORY to get 20% off. That URL, once again, is trylgc.com slash btnewberg. Let's get checked. So it's finally here. Folks, today is the final episode of our Super Deep Dive series, Sex in the Third Reich.
This makes 16 episodes on sex and gender in Germany in the years leading up to and during World War II, which, if I'm not mistaken, is longer and more in-depth than any other project in the audiovisual medium on this topic. You won't find this on the History Channel or anywhere else. Early 20th century Germany was in many ways the birthplace of our modern Western sexual values, turbulent as it was. We saw great leaps forward in the Weimar period and great leaps backward in the Nazi one. We've looked at sex and gender from all different perspectives in this series, from gender roles to population politics to masculinity to femininity to music to religion to fatherhood to fashion to swing kid petting parties. We've looked at the Jewish experience, we've explored the experience of straights, gays, lesbians, and cross-dressers. We've also touched on transgender issues with the first full-time male-to-female gender confirmation surgery undergone by Dora Richter. And by the way, in this time period in Germany, there was also the first female-to-male surgery undergone by Carl M. Baer. And there's more to be said on transgender issues. I definitely wanted to have a full episode on it. But with libraries closed for the pandemic, I just can't seem to get at the information, and I have to learn more about the experience, so I'd rather devote a fuller episode to it later and get it right. In any case, in this series we have explored sex and gender from nearly every perspective there is to explore. But one that we haven't given enough attention to yet is bisexuality. So that is going to be our topic for today. Folks, thank you for listening thus far to this series, and now, please join me for the final episode of Sex in the Third Reich. Time for today's Short Shorts. Short Shorts! Short, short. Why didn't the door swing both ways in the Third Reich? Because it certainly could have, and indeed, one might argue, should have, in order to best implement its pro-natalist policy. The basic policy on sex in the Third Reich was we need more babies to fight the next war, to foster the next generation of Aryan supermen and superwomen, and most immediately, to outbreed the Slavs, whose birth rate was more than double that of Germans at the time. That's the way they were thinking about it at the time. It was population politics. Babies were a national resource, and Germany needed them desperately. And a logical implementation of that policy would seem to be all hands on deck. Everyone who can make babies should make babies, right? So why then didn't the Nazis consider the baby-making potential of bisexuals? Or for that matter, why didn't the Nazis consider them at all? We're going to try to find that out. But first, we should get a clear idea of what bisexuality is. The term bisexual refers to someone who is sexually attracted to both sexes, male and female. The bi in it means two, like bicycle, so makes sense, right? There is also pansexual, which may or may not be considered a separate orientation from bisexual. Pansexual means attracted to people regardless of sex or gender, without implying the binary in bi, male, female, anything in between, attracted to all of it. Now, bisexuals are the B in the acronym LGBTQ. They're included right there, but surprisingly, they have long suffered from a kind of exclusion called bisexual erasure. Also called bisexual invisibility, this is the tendency for people, both hetero and homo, 
to ignore, explain away, or dismiss bisexuals. And it can be as simple as calling someone straight when they're with an opposite sex partner and gay when they're with the same sex one. Or it can mean insisting that bisexuality is just a phase. That happens. Or, at the extreme end, it can even go so far as denying the very existence of bisexuals. And as a result, bisexuals often have to struggle for acceptance, not only within society, but even in the LGBTQ community as well. They also tend to suffer higher rates of anxiety, depression, and destructive behavior compared to either hetero or homosexuals. So in short, bisexuals tend to get forgotten and they suffer for it. And that makes me wonder, is that what was going on in Germany? And has it always been this way? And if so, why? There are a number of reasons why bisexual erasure tends to happen, and interestingly, the reasons seem to vary across different eras of history, depending on how people of the time conceived of sexuality. So let's go back and get a super brief history of bisexuality and bisexual erasure, starting with the ancient world of Greece and Rome. <laughs> In Greece and Rome, people who were attracted to both sexes were all over the place. They didn't think of them as bisexuals because they had no concept of orientation yet, but they were all over the place. The Greeks practiced pederasty, where older men got with younger men, and most of those guys had wives and children. Meanwhile, the Romans actually considered bisexuality to be the default setting of human nature, believe it or not. They felt that people only had a vague sense of preference for one sex or another, but not a 100% certainty of male desiring or female desiring. They just assumed that on some level, at least a little bit, everyone wanted to hit everything. <laughs> so in the ancient world, there wasn't much in the way of bisexual erasure to speak of. I mean, it was everywhere. And in fact, it was built into their concept of human nature. However, that concept begins to change as we move into the Christian era with major consequences for bisexuality. In the Christian era, bisexuals become far less visible, but not because people were down on them specifically. Rather, it was because half of being bisexual, namely the same-sex relations half, was condemned as sodomy. And that is what they were down on. Thus, bisexuality disappeared from public view. Individuals would appear publicly in opposite sex relationships, but any same-sex relationships henceforth would have to be hidden. This effectively erased bisexuals from the public view unless they were caught with a same-sex partner. And interestingly, because of the way that they thought about sodomy, even when caught, bisexuals were still invisible as such. See, sodomy was seen as an act, not a personal trait. It didn't matter if you were the kind of person who was attracted to both sexes. The question was, did you commit sodomy or not? Not, do you also have non-sodomitical relations? I mean, you don't ask a thief, so you steal things, but do you also not steal things? That's the way they thought about sodomy at the time. Consequently, even when a bisexual person was exposed, it never occurred to people to think of them as part of a class of people attracted to both sexes. There were only two relevant categories, sodomite or not. So 
those who we would now call bisexuals kind of just got lost in the mix of heterosexuals on the one hand and homosexuals on the other. Now, should this count as bisexual erasure? Well, it's a little weird to call it that when they didn't have a concept of bisexuality yet, but clearly there was something going on that was making those who were attracted to both sexes invisible. So maybe we should call this some kind of like proto-bisexual erasure. But in any case, those attracted to both sexes disappeared from view in this time period because half the expression of their sexuality was condemned. And when brought to light, it simply wasn't seen as relevant that they also had opposite sex relations. But a time was coming when it would be relevant as habits of thought began to change in the modern era. With the rise of modern science came a push to type and categorize, and this was no less true in the new science of psychology as it turned its gaze to sexuality in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. What had always been seen as just behaviors now became orientations, you know, traits that defined what type of person you were. Suddenly you had categories of human sexuality, typologies, and logically, you wanted to know all the different possible types. I mean, if you could now be either A, someone attracted to the opposite sex, or B, someone attracted to the same sex, then it very quickly sprang to mind to say that, hey, maybe somebody might answer C, all of the above. Or for that matter, D, none of the above. Asexuality became a thing in this time period as well, but that's a story for another time. Bisexuality proper as an orientation was invented in this time period along with the invention of heterosexuality, homosexuality, and everything else. Now it's relevant for our topic today that this change happened in Germany. Because after all, we're ultimately heading toward the Third Reich here. The first appearance of the term bisexual in the modern sense was in the work of Richard von Kraft Ebbing, who was Austro-German, and the development of the notion of sexual orientation was accomplished by Magnus Hirschfeld, again, a German, and clubs and organizations, including ones for bisexuals, began to spring up where? In Germany. Germany led the world in this cutting-edge progressive way of thinking about sex, and so bisexuals finally became visible there. Which is why it is so odd that the Nazis apparently couldn't see them. In the one place in the world where bisexuals were most able to have policies formulated specifically aimed at them, they got left out entirely. Why couldn't the Nazis see them? How could this be? Well, maybe it's because these Nazi guys just hadn't heard of bisexuals. Maybe word had gotten through to the left, but these extreme right-wing nutjobs still had their heads in the sand. Nope, that was not the case. In fact, there were movements within the Nazi party itself that claimed bisexuality. We've already heard in a previous episode how Ernst Röhm and Helmuth Bruckner claimed bisexuality when charged with sodomy and couldn't imagine how such a thing could be against party ideology. Because rightly so, they said, hey, we can still have babies, we can still do everything you want. But it fell on deaf ears in the courts. And it went beyond courts as well. There was a whole movement in Germany of people calling themselves masculinists, many of whom would find their way into Nazi ranks 
and these masculinists extolled a homoerotic warrior spirit inspired by the ancient Spartans, who were Greeks, like we were talking about just a second ago. Historian Lauren Stokes describes it. According to what was called the masculinist homosexual movement, represented by figures such as Adolf Brand, Benedict Friedlander, and Hans Blucher, bisexual behaviors enabled a kind of ultra-patriotism for homosexuals. By taking wives, men could uphold their responsibility to father children, and by taking male lovers, they could express their commitment to the national male community, a community that they understood as formed by homosocial and homoerotic relationships that strengthened national institutions, including the army, police, and civil service. Bisexual behavior then emerged as both a reasoned choice and as a form of patriotic duty in the writings of the masculinists. So these masculinists felt that they were doing what the regime demanded because they didn't see their homoerotic sexcapades as excluding also having sex with women. In short, they felt themselves so hyper-masculine that they felt they could screw whomever they pleased, man or woman. Their values in politics were conservative and often rather misogynistic, which made them fit right in with the Nazis. And so it came to be that a whole swath of bisexuals were present right there within the National Socialist movement itself. So it cannot be said that the Nazi policymakers were unfamiliar with bisexuality. It was right there in front of them. And yet, time and time again, when people like Rome or Bruckner pleaded bisexuality, often specifically stating how they could still fulfill their national duty to make babies, they were ignored. No specific policy was formulated with reference to bisexuals, and when the regime began implementing persecution of homosexuals, no special exceptions were made. Bisexuals were persecuted right along with them. So what could explain all of this? Well, at least some of it can be explained as a continuation of the same attitudes that we saw earlier in the Christian era. In the case of court proceedings like Bruckner's, it's likely that we're seeing the same kind of medieval renaissance thing that's like, there's a law against sodomy on the books, so sorry, but it doesn't matter if you also have sex with women. What matters is that you committed the crime. Guilty. Case closed. And that's why those like Bruckner were not acquitted when they pleaded bisexuality in the courts. But that doesn't explain why the regime in general failed to consider bisexuals in their overall policy. Because what they were pleading was true. They could faithfully fulfill their duty to the fatherland to breed the next generation of Aryan soldiers. Logically speaking, it really shouldn't have mattered to party ideology whether a person was heterosexual or bisexual. Either way, the party got what it wanted. Yet bisexuals were persecuted anyway. And that is what makes me think that the best explanation is that what we're seeing is modern bisexual erasure. This appears like it might have been pretty much the beginning of it. So let's dig down deep into this then. Why is this going on and what motivates it? Legal scholar Kenji Yoshino identifies three motives for erasure today. The stabilization of orientations, the maintenance of gender boundaries, and the defense of monogamy. So let's break those down and apply them to Germany in the Third Reich. And maybe we'll learn something in the process about erasure today. So the first motive is stabilization of orientations. So what he means by that is, in an age where sexual orientation is a thing, as it was in Germany, just like today, 
it makes it harder to tell yourself I'm by nature attracted to women or by nature attracted to men when there are also people next to you who are like, no, nah, I'm good with whatever. And this may seem to undermine the very notion of an orientation. Now, it doesn't really because bisexuality is itself an orientation, but it might seem like the presence of bisexuals undermine the rigid categorization that your own orientation may rely on. And so, to preserve one's own sense of stable orientation, it's very easy to just conveniently ignore bisexuality. And that may very well be what's going on here in the Nazi movement. They refuse to countenance bisexuals, perhaps in order to affirm their own heterostraightness to themselves and their own self-conception. And this was, in fact, something about which many in the Third Reich were quite anxious, since they valorized the homosocial bonds of manly brotherhood, which were forged in the trenches of World War I and made a whole big mythos out of that, they then had to be very careful to distance themselves from the homoerotic potential that that might be perceived to imply. And so they were probably inclined to conveniently ignore bisexuality in order to better insulate their straight and narrow heterosexual self-image. That's entirely possible and seems relatively likely, at least to me. Now, the second motive identified by Yoshino is the maintenance of gender boundaries. What he means here is if your orientation depends on one sex being different from the other sex, you know, if it's like, I'm attracted to women and I need this, like, that is what a woman is and what I should be attracted to to make me feel good about my sexual feelings, <laughs> then the presence of those who are good with either, all loosey-goosey-like, might feel threatening. And this seems to have been true in the Third Reich as well. Gender was a big deal for the Nazis. As we've seen, they emerged at a time when gender had turned upside down. After World War I, women were working male-coded jobs. They were wearing pants and top hats and monocles and smoking. They were sporting the booby cuff or page boy haircut that made them look like boys. Meanwhile, men were traumatized from the war, unable to deal with their mixed feelings about it, and often reduced to dependence in the household due to war injuries, which put them at risk of appearing kind of feminine. And all of that really messed with the feelings of conservatives like the early Nazis. They were extremely anxious about gender, and when the regime took control, they enforced rigidly traditional gender roles. To acknowledge bisexuals at that point may have been perceived as a threat to those highly distinct roles. Now, the third and final motive highlighted by Yoshino is a little bit harder to wrap your mind around. It's the defense of monogamy, and the thought process seems to be that there's this assumption that bisexuals are intrinsically polygamous for some reason. They aren't, but that's the thought process, apparently. It's as if, you know, if you imagine someone attracted to both sexes, maybe you assume they have to have one of each at the same time, therefore polygamous. It doesn't really make sense but then a lot of human behavior is irrational, so I guess there you go. Now, this one is probably a little harder to pin on the Nazis, because they weren't very good at monogamy themselves. They paid lip service to it insofar as they valorized the traditional household unit of mother, father, child, but they also gave the nudge-nudge and the wink-wink, you know, encouraging men, especially SS officers, to take mistresses on the side in order to maximally spread the Aryan seed as far and wide as possible. And they even encouraged young unmarried girls to bear a child out of wedlock for the fatherland. 
So monogamy wasn't really more than a surface value for the Third Reich. Defending monogamy may not have been a very strong motive for by erasure in the Nazi regime. In any case, the first two of Yoshino's motives, stabilizing sexual orientations and maintenance of gender boundaries, do fit pretty well. They fit hand in glove, in fact. And that's enough for me to suspect that the reason that the Third Reich formulated no specific policy on bisexuals and generally just pretended that they didn't exist, despite being stared right in the face by them within their own party, was due to the dynamics of bisexual erasure, both of the kind we saw in the Christian era playing itself out in the courts, and of the modern kind outlined by Yoshino, motivated by stabilizing orientations and maintaining gender boundaries. And this might well be one of the first major instances of history of this kind of modern bisexual erasure. Nowadays, bisexuals are far more visible than they were in the Third Reich, or ever before for that matter. They are officially enshrined in the acronym, you know, the B in the LGBTQ, and yet the fact remains that erasure is still very much a thing today for all the reasons outlined by Yoshino. Bisexuals do continue to struggle for acceptance both within society and within the homosexual community, and they suffer higher rates of anxiety, depression, and self-destructive behavior. So what we can take away from this for us today is that clearly the task remains for us to overcome our monosexual biases and find a new way to think that doesn't tend toward either gay or straight as the only ways to be. And that is all, folks, for our super deep dive series, Sex in the Third Reich. And this also concludes this season of the history of sex. We will be back with more episodes in the future, but we're not going to be coming out with them on the same weekly schedule. I definitely need to take a break to research and recharge. And when we come back, it might be an entirely different kind of schedule, probably less frequent. The weekly thing was an effort to get this show off and running and it's done that. If you like what we're doing here, you can support the show by subscribing, rating, and reviewing, or by pledging on Patreon, where $5 a month gets you a portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you as an ancient Roman proudly surveying the buffet of possibilities before you, or whatever you want. I'll make you look awesome, I promise. Just go to www.patreon.com slash btnewberg. That's patreon.com slash btnewberg. Thank you, everybody, for being with me this year. I will be back, and I will see you again. For now, this is B.T. Newberg signing off for the history of sex. Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.